This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. This is episode 160, and today I sat down with Megan Klein, the founder and CEO of Little Saints. Little Saints is a brand of functional, sugar-free, non-alcoholic, ready-to-drink mocktails available in popular flavors like Paloma, Ginger Mule, Spicy Margarita, and Negroni, and are expertly formulated by a food scientist using top-quality hemp-derived CBD, terpenes, and reishi. Megan shares her story from growing up in Wisconsin with aspirations to work in politics, to working as a paralegal and attending law school in New York City, to following her passion for environmental justice, which, after some stalking, led to becoming president of a vertical farming company called Farmed Here, where she led the company for two years until it went bankrupt and then created Field and Farmer from the Ashes, which still to this day sells plant-based sauces and dips. We talk about how she came up with the idea for Little Saints and launched the brand at a music festival in Detroit, how she infuses plant spirit medicine into each can, and how a money astrologer led her to move to Miami. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Megan. How are you doing today? Great, Lee. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I'm excited to hear your story in building Little Saints. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. I know you're calling in from a hotel room right now in New York. You're based in Miami. But before Mm -hmm. we kind of talk about how you got to Miami, which I'm super excited to hear and dive into because we were talking (laughs) about it a little bit before we hopped on. Let's start with where you're from originally, you know, what was your childhood like? What kind of kid were you? So I am a born and bred proud Midwesterner. I grew up in Wisconsin, a suburb of Milwaukee, and was always like a wild, curious little kid. I'm the oldest of four children, and, wow. but I'm I'm an atypical oldest. I'm pretty independent, so that would be typical, but I definitely... I was the little rebel in my family. I was mm-hmm. the one getting into trouble. And what kind of trouble being, are you getting into? I'm just really curious. I mean, I think it's the quality that makes you a good entrepreneur or like yeah. whatever, but just really curious getting into everything. I would always kind of push limits and <laughs> drive my parents crazy. My mom said I never stopped talking from the age of like two to four. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Do you remember a moment where you pushed the limits a little too far? Oh, yeah. I mean, my family always said that I should be a lawyer so that I could channel my like constant advocating for like whatever into something positive. I mean, I remember when I was like a teenager going on like a total rant about 
bottled waters from Costco or whatever. There was always something. But I should say, I, I like, you, I'm super close to my family and I like love them dearly. I just, um, God bless them. You had a strong voice. You were, 18. yeah. You had a lot of conviction, it sounds like. I did. I did. So did you always want to be a lawyer? Like, how did that come up? I guess, was it an idea from your family or what did you want to be when you were little? When I was little, I wanted to be a politician, which is like hilarious as of right now, because I would not want to be a politician. But when I was little, I wanted to like be a mayor of Milwaukee or something. Um. (laughs) Because you wanted to be a leader. It sounds like you're a very natural leader. I think so. Yes. I was the leader of four or of five right. my family. I you had your I own little tribe at home that you led. And then in <laughs> yes. what other ways growing up were you a leader? Do you remember other things that you did or pursued as a kid that showed more of that leadership skill? Gosh, I did so many things. I did a lot of group sports and I think I like kind of expressed leadership through that. I was an Irish dancer and then I was on a basketball team. I was always kind of doing a lot of things. I was the um, editor of our school newspaper. When I was a little kid, I was just the leader of my family. I would like take everyone. I don't, you know, like parents just were different back then. I would like take like all of my siblings to the park when I was like 10 and like babysit their friends and somehow have like a band of children with me with no supervision at like 10 and 11 years old. Your parents were like, she's old enough. It's fine. Like, she's fine. <laughs> she's great. <laughs> That's funny. And you probably had to um, blaze your own path, right? You were a trailblazer, I'm sure, because you had to try everything first. And then the kids followed maybe what you did. Oh, yeah. Like every other oldest child. So yeah, like, I'm the oh, oldest, was, obviously. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I was grounded for like half of high school. And then my brother did the exact same things and was like never grounded. Yeah. You know, understand. I remember I was defending myself with my sister once I kicked her in the ribs and I had to pay for that x-ray for like the pat for like six months for my like tiny little allowance. It was brutal. Oh, like, you know, oh. did she have to pay? I didn't break any ribs. I mean, she was fine, but she cried and, you know, got the intention and I got punished. <laughs> Oh my god, that's hilarious. Right. When only the older kid, I feel like, gets that punishment. Oh yeah. I had a summer of like indentured servitude where I was grounded and my parents made me drive my brother and his friends around the whole time for like (laughs) getting caught drinking or something. Oh god. (laughs) We have to learn all the hard lessons, you know. Just kidding. Mm -hmm. Makes you resilient as an entrepreneur. It does. It does. You know, it builds that resilience muscle. And so, you know, it looks like you have this leadership skill. You went to be mayor. When did you decide politics wasn't for you? What were some of your first jobs as you were kind of getting into the workforce? I always loved working. I mean, just random jobs. I like fried mozzarella sticks for Sazes at Summerfest. For what? Where did you fry mozzarella sticks? (laughs) It was the only job you could get when you were 15. And it was great because you worked at like, it was a basically like a festival ground and we would work all day long. And then they had music at the venue. It's like a music festival. So then you could get into the, like the music shows at night. So all nice. of our friends did that in the summer. I worked at That's a like bagel the cool place. kids job. Oh, it was great. It was so great. My favorite job in high school, I was always working. I worked in a flower shop. I would like go to work at this flower shop between school and my basketball practice. And I like put flower arrangements together. I've always really loved plants. That was the best one. Oh, interesting. All right. So you uh, put flower arrangements together, sounds like. Flower arrangements together, just took orders. It was pretty basic. But yeah, I love that job. I always was working a couple jobs, you know, like after college, I was working three jobs until I settled on being a paralegal. And I think you asked me how I became a lawyer. It was kind of like I I majored in English and French in college. And I don't know, it was like, I didn't really 
know what to do. I was kind of just moving on a path of like, oh, I think that'll make me some money. I wouldn't say that I found my passion until well after 30, actually, maybe around 35. You know, 30s are the new 20s. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Seriously. It's before we go there. Um, so what were the three jobs you had before you decided to be a lawyer? Well, it was right after school. So right after college, I went to BC. I was working in a clothing store on Saturday and Sundays. I was working for Milwaukee Magazine, like writing some stories. I think I was a paid intern. It was like very low level. And then I was working as a paralegal for a family friend doing E. coli cases of all things, which is funny because I've done some food safety since then. But um, I was doing all those three things. And really, I wanted to move to New York. I'd gone to BC and a lot of my friends had moved to New York right after college, which was 2001. So a lot of my friends were there on September 11th. And I just then got a paralegal job in New York, mostly to allow me to move to New York. I wasn't passionate about being a paralegal, but it was the only job I could get. So why did you want to go to New York? What made you, what sparked that interest? I love Wisconsin with all my heart, but it was not where I wanted to. I wanted to like go back and be with my college friends. And I love the energy of New York City. And I just felt so inspired when I was going to visit my friends there. Yeah. All right. So you're like, I've got to be here. This is where I've got to go. And so did you get a job as a paralegal in New York? I got a job at this big, bad firm called Cravath, Swain and Moore. It's one of the like storied big corporate firms in New York. Wow. It was great. You got paid overtime. I They flew me to Paris to make photocopies for like two months because I oh spoke God. French at that time. I'm like great at losing languages. I don't speak it anymore. But it was like a really, really fantastic job for being 23 and 24. To go to Paris and just have to what do a couple copies printed did a lot of photocopies around the clock but i didn't really care because i was staying in a hotel in paris for free so i was like bring me the copies keep it coming i mean amazing how (laughs) long did you get to stay there right two months on the first try and then there was like i went back for three months three weeks a couple of months later and you're like yeah i can speak some french i'll go and they're like done give me do you need many more papers done it's such a wild thing that like we used to make photocopies nothing was even on a cd yet that was in 2003 wow that's funny so then so then what happened How, what did you do after that so then i went to law school kind of the the plan was always to go to law school mm-hmm. i wanted to be i've always so i loved plants you know I, I worked at the flower shop in high school i still love like arranging flowers and i wanted to do some sort of environmental law. Like I wanted to be an environmental advocate and I was like, okay, I'm going to go to law school. So I went to Fordham for law school in New Mm -hmm. York and got a job at a big firm. And I had no idea what I was doing. I thought that an energy practice meant that I was going to be an environmentalist and that's not the case. I mean, like I was, I started being an associate there in 2006 and I was working on wind and ethanol cases. And then that quickly turned into like, bankruptcy litigation. So I I lasted at a big firm for three years. And then I kind of felt like when I was just working on bankruptcy cases, I felt like I was contributing to the demise of like the world. So I did what no one should do, but I did. Or actually, I guess you should do it. I quit my job without a job in the summer of 2009 when the world was ending. Yeah. And I went and I started volunteering at a rooftop farm in Brooklyn and for the League of Conservation Voters doing environmental research. 
because I really wanted to get a job with Earth Justice. So Earth Justice is a national environmental nonprofit law firm. It's like it was the original law firm for the Sierra Club. And they do really great work. And that's the job I wanted. And I ended up getting it. So I switched from corporate law to like volunteer rooftop farmer to Earth Justice attorney. And I did that for two years. All right. And how was it? What did you learn? Oh my gosh, I learned so much. I mean, I was on, it was a really exciting time. It was when fracking, like oil and gas fracking was just kind of coming to the forefront and it was early stages of the technology. So it was being implemented pretty poorly. So people could light their taps on fire and there was a lot of air pollution and water pollution. And my team, like the managing attorneys there were total really smart women. I learned a lot from them. So they were part of the team that, I mean, we were part of the team that kept fracking out of New York state. And I also was on their early team where we were fighting factory farms. Nice. How did that go? That's a tough, that's a tough one. (laughs) You know, I love earth justice so much, but I, what I realized was like, I don't like fighting and that is what environmental law is. And it's so useful and we need them. But just for me personally, I wasn't, I'm a lot better at what I do now. Like I wasn't like that great at fighting things, you know, like I would, I was writing policy papers. I realized that my favorite thing to do would be to either do a negotiation with the other side or like be speaking to people about it. When I was just sitting in a room and kind of like writing fighting words, I wasn't that happy personally. Right. You wanted some actual contact there, like yeah. some combat. And I also know, and you know what, cause I don't like fighting what I realized for me was, I was like, oh, we're just fighting. We're not actually, when you're in court on this kind of thing, you're not coming to an agreement with the other side. The reason that environmental law is so effective is because it goes really far and you're like asking for like the earth to be clean and whatever that form is in the case. And that's what it should be. But there's not a lot of compromise. You know, maybe in the end there is, but no one's ever really happy with it. And so what I started to see was I was like, okay, there are brilliant, amazing people that are really great at this work. And I am just not cut out for this. I actually really love doing, I I kind of started to see that business was a great way to be an environmentalist because you could create products or be part of a team, helping people think differently about the environment, helping people love plants in a certain way. And that's really the direction I wanted to go in. And so when I was, I was living in New York and working for Earth Justice, I knew that like after the two-year kind of fellowship was up that I would leave. I also, I read a book called The Vertical Farm by a Columbia professor named Dixon DePomier. And it was all about how like the world was moving increasingly to cities and we would need food grown there. And so I got obsessed with vertical farming and I moved to Chicago, which is closer to Wisconsin where I'm from. And I basically just stalked this vertical farm called Farmed Here until they hired me. That's amazing. I always have to do that to get a job most of the time. It's like just stalk (laughs) them until they say yes. So what, so tell me what you did to, like, what does stalking mean to you? Like, what what are all the things that you had to do to try to get seen? Like such a stalker. I would show up at events that they had, like if they had a tasting in the grocery store, I'd be talking to the poor, like brand ambassador. They'd be like, I can't give you a job. They're like, I can't help you. I would email their info at, and then I, I finally got their attention. And because I was a skilled policy advocate by this point, so I was sponsored by the Walton Family Foundation to write some FDA comments or comments to the FDA on the Food Safety Modernization Act. 
on behalf of the aquaponics industry. That's a lot of words, but basically- Yeah, I have no idea what you just said. I don't know if anybody listening knows. I know, I'm sorry. Okay, so I was basically doing some a policy paper okay. that was being written on behalf of people who did indoor farming. Okay. And aquaponics is the type of indoor farming where you have fish and plants existing in a symbiotic relationship. So like the fish waste feeds the plant roots. And that was the way that Farmed Here was growing their basil and microgreens. And as part of these like new FDA rules that came out in 2016, there was like a lot of policy back and forth. And so I brought together a group of aquaponic and hydroponic farmers and had them sign on to these policy comments. That which was basically giving the FDA the feedback from this niche part of the farming industry. Interesting. That's awesome. How did you get the job then? I know you're president. You were president of Farmed Here. How did you snag that from all of this uh, stalking you were doing? Well, so finally, when they saw these comments that they were happy to sign on to, they were like, oh, okay, this person is probably still crazy, but she at least knows what she's talking about in terms of our industry. And so they had some legal troubles at the time. And so I said, I was like, you know, I had my own little law firm at the time. And so I said, listen, I'll just work pro bono for you. I know we're going to work together. I'll help you figure out these lawsuits against you. And that's how I got it. So I started out as an unpaid general counsel. And I, I mean, I would not recommend that, but I was, that's where if you're passionate about what you're doing, I was just so excited to get to go to this vertical farm and work every day. It was in an old warehouse just outside of Chicago. And we had 20,000 square feet of basil growing under LED lights. I just, I thought it was the most beautiful place in the world. That's awesome. Wow. And so, yeah, unpaid legal work, that's that's a real good foot in the door. I think a lot of companies would love that. And so what was your experience there? I think you were there for almost three years. So kind of walk us through, was it everything you'd hoped for and more? Oh, my gosh. I, had, I think with any entrepreneur story, like had I known. Exactly why I asked. So what were some of the biggest challenges? So what happened was when I first started the venture, I helped the found I was not one of the founders. Founders were brilliant and brought something to life that had never been brought before. The venture team that led the fundraising round that like happened pretty much with the year that I started. About a year into that, they ended up making me president of the farm. And so I led the farm as president for two years until we shut it down. So I, as an entrepreneur, yeah. So as an entrepreneur, I have the, I would say definitely it's a Good thing to have experienced failure, but I have the experience of like shutting down a company and I'll go into more of that later. But we we then pivoted and instead of just like folding it and like crying, we actually merged with the co-packer and we created the brand Field and Farmer, which is still on Whole Foods shelves today. So the shutting down, the failure of a business like ended up being the birthplace of a business that's like really sustainable and continues to grow. That's amazing. So walk us through that a little bit. So you were there, you were running, you were basically leading the business for two years. And in that two years, you had to, you can, you must have gotten to a point where you're like, this is not working. At what point did you realize that? How did you go about communicating that with the founders and the team and the investors, and then going down this path to pivoting and merging and creating something new? Well, you know, this one, like Little Saints, I founded my own and I have a great team around me now, but Farmed Here, we had a, a team of people 
people working on it. And there were people with much like more engineering minds. And so we all kind of came to this conclusion together. The farm was sort of literally dying. I remember going to the Netherlands to try to figure out if we could, you know, do, we had people coming over trying to figure out if we could redesign the farm in a way that would have a reasonable ROI and it wasn't going to work. But, and you know, the thing was vertical farming has come a long way, like now LED lights and so many of the technologies are less expensive and more available. And so I think the timing is probably much better now, but at the time, you know, the founders were pioneers. We were trying to do it really early and it really, for me personally, it set me up to really understand how to work in a new market where there's not a playbook. And so it was baptism by fire for that one, but it definitely was great <laughs> business skill building. For baptism me for by fire. I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. And so what happened after that? You were, did you stay at Field and Farmer, I guess, for a little bit? And how did that business go? Sure. So what we did was, so when we shut down Farmed Here, our greatest sort of value proposition was that people really in the Midwest really trusted us as a local brand. And at that time, local was one of the fastest growing categories in food, you know, like farmers markets and everything. Everyone kind of wanted local food. And we had been, we were the first to take our ugly basil at the farm and turn it into salad dressing. And that salad dressing line was, did really well. And so we just expanded that idea and started sourcing local produce from Midwestern farms. And we made dips, salad dressings, and juices out of it. So we created that Field and Farmer brand out of the ashes of Farmed Here. And then we also were running a co-manufacturing facility. And both of those businesses still exist today. That's great. So you took failure, turned it into a success. So very much lemons to lemonade, sounds like. Mm-hmm. And so how did you come up with the idea for Little Saints? Where were you? What What's the kind of story behind there? How did you shift from you know growing and building this business field and farmer to now Little Saints? At that point, when I started Little Saints, I'd been an entrepreneur in the wellness space for about six years now. It's been like eight, but, and I really passionate about like making products and kind of using plants in in new ways. It's so fun for me. And one thing that I noticed was that I was sort of a wellness entrepreneur during the day and then like an alcohol drinker at night. And I just started to see how that was kind of really counteracting each other. And before I talk about my views on alcohol, I should say like I am from Wisconsin. All of my friends and family still drink. I don't judge anyone. This was all like kind of my experience with alcohol. So I actually left Field and Farmer the last week of February 2020, right before the pandemic hit. And I knew that I wanted to create a company with functional sacred plant ingredients. And I knew I wanted it to be a beverage, but I didn't really know exactly what that was going to be. So sacred plants, the way I define them is plants with curative properties, which would be like adaptogens or something and spiritual properties. And so I I knew, and no one was really like talking about that outside of the plant medicine space. And obviously I wanted to use legal sacred plant ingredients and examples of those would be functional mushrooms like reishi mushroom and lion's mane. And so I I knew that I wanted to kind of do that. So I started doing research and then I drank way too much alcohol during the pandemic, like many of us, and just started thinking about like, okay, this is not helping me. I meditate every day. I do yoga every day. I've done like a lot of plant medicine work. And so I consider myself a very grounded spiritual person. And then I just started seeing during the pandemic when I was alone, that the alcohol was sort of counteracting all that. So I did 
dry January, 2021 marketer that I am. I bought every non-alcoholic drink on the market to try everything. And so many great brands with founders that I respect so much. And the things that I didn't find were number one, I wanted like a non-alcoholic drink to be sugar-free. I sort of was of the mind where if I was going to drink sugar, I'd probably just drink alcohol. (laughs) Number two, I wanted some like kind of more powerful functional ingredients in there. And since I'm kind of like a you know, on my own, like I know a lot about plants. I'm a little bit like witchy with my own concoctions. I wanted to go a little bit farther with the functional ingredients that were in things. And then number three was the scent. I really love like essential oils and scents. And I know that one of the reasons we all like alcohol is because we like the scent of it, even whether we can, we consciously know that or not. We had a good experience with a glass of wine. And so we want that experience again. And it's the scent. So when non-alcoholic drinks don't have a scent to them. You don't realize it, but the the experience isn't like as close to alcohol as you would want. So I really wanted to put scents in a drink. So I took all of that sort of market research and I created the Little Saints mocktails. And where were you? Like, what was that moment where you're like, this is it. This is what I want to create. And do you remember where you were or what you were doing when that that like really hit you? Oh, yeah. So I never have talked about this, but it's hilarious. I was actually living in Detroit alone. I had started like supply chain was a disaster then. And everyone was like wearing masks and I'm super social and I was single and I was like, I can't like do anything. So I first created these hemp silk cocktail masks. It was like a mask that you could drink through with a straw. And they were super chic and like hand dyed. They were pretty ridiculous, like in terms of being cool. (laughs) But I was in Detroit and I had launched the Hemp Silk Cocktail Mess there, knowing that I would like launch some sort of beverage after that. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about. But Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You'll be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. So that's when you knew. It's when you made this mask, this cocktail mask that you're like, (laughs) now I've got to make a cocktail. No, you know what? I knew when I started because I'm always serving people. So I had just graduated from the Kellogg Executive MBA program. So I used, I did that while I was at Field and Farmer. I used like my four student class group as a consistent focus group. And I knew that we were all having the same experience. Like we wanted an experience that was close to alcohol. We're smart people. We want it to work. We want it to be sugar-free. We want it to be like doing something good for our brain. And so I was kind of just like a consistent focus group with people. And then all I really needed to do was kind of nail down the functional ingredient blend and get the flavors right. 
And so when you're like, okay, I know that this is what I want to do, then what were your steps to figuring out what types of products to launch with, how many, what the flavors would be? Like, can you walk us through your your kind of go-to-market strategy a little bit there on the product side? Yeah, sure. So first I, you know, like the, those three attributes that I said, like sugar-free, functional and scent, that's kind of what I went to my formulation team with. And so my formulation team is a little bit non-conventional. It is a, first of all, I worked with a food scientist with her master's in adaptogens. And so she really knew how to like create a blend. Her husband happens to be a bartender. So he, he could like really, you know, lean in on like the cocktail specific flavors. And then we also have like a sacred plant medicine shaman advisor, and she advised on the spiritual properties of the plants. So what does that mean? Spiritual properties of the plants? How are you getting spirits, like spiritual stuff into the drinks? So it's, so when there's a long history called plant spirit medicine, and it is, I know that sounds really woo, but I mention it because it's like a way to kind of walk around the world and see trees in a new way and just like bring joy into your life, no matter where you live. So the premise of plant spirit medicine is that like plants, are all living beings. And if we interact with them with intention, then they can kind of like, you know, give us like have a reciprocal relationship with us and give us what we need. And so I was talking to and I have been studying that like, I really like love trees and just like believe the world would be a happier place if people like were closer to the plant kingdom. And so I just I wanted to make sure that I brought some of that into the drinks in an authentic way. And so what does that involve, though? Because I I actually I know what you're saying. And I think I remembered this, uh, I don't know, test or something they did where they said, like, to a group of plants, I love you, you're amazing, all these positive things. And then another group of plants, like really negative things. And the negative ones died. And the other ones were flourishing and blooming and all this stuff. And you're like, I can't believe it that these plants kind of understand our words, (laughs) or like, or our intentions or whatever you want to call it. But is that kind of what you're talking about? And if so, how are you doing that with, are you guys like talking to your plants? Is that like kind of part of the thing before you put them in the drinks? (laughs) Totally. So just just get ready to laugh, but this is true and it actually works. So we have our shamanic advisor tells us a prayer to say to the plants, and this is not a sustainable long-term solution, but to date... I've been at every one of our production runs and we say the prayer. So we put the intention into the raw plant ingredient batch. So how do I know what prayer I have? Oh, it's always the same one. Oh, it's it is? What the is same it? One. Yeah, it's like, dear plant allies, you know, please help us to like be more present and fully alive. Help us to live joyfully and kindly. And may these drinks inspire fun in all who try them. Oh, inspire fun. You know, they kind of do. I got to say, because I had my toddler's two-year-old birthday party the other day. (laughs) And before I read the details of (laughs) the drink, I had them on display and I wanted everybody to try them. And so a lot of the parents were like, this is really good. What is this? This is a cool new brand, blah, blah, blah. And then one of the women, the moms comes up to me and she's like, this is really good. But also she's like, you're so cool to have CBD drinks at your toddler's birthday party. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I didn't realize there was CBD. Um, I didn't really read it. I just set them out because I just got them that day. I was like, perfect timing. Like they get to try them, you know? And we're like, oh, shit, get them off the table. We don't want the toddlers to grab them. But anyways, that was my funny story of, uh, yes, I think it does inspire fun. (laughs) 
I'm so happy to hear. I'm so happy to hear. This is probably a good time to make sure everyone knows that CBD is not intoxicating. They actually like tell children not to have it. And of course, children shouldn't have it. I'm not the FDA because in the early days, CBD would have traces of THC in it. And that's what we're really worried about for children. Like Little Saints has like lab results and all the things showing that there's no THC in the drinks. They are not intoxicating. They're just fun. <laughs> I mean, they could turn your little ones into Little Saints, you know, that's what this drink <laughs> could do. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh my God. I love it. Little Saints 2.0. Right. Um, anyway, so yeah, they taste amazing. I'd love to go through some of the flavors you have. I know you've got a new launch that is coming out. What? Tomorrow? tomorrow and by the time this is launched it's already around it's available so you've got and i love you to say plant magic mocktail i mean that's such a great little description i think of what these are uh, especially the magic piece i think is very uh on par with what we were saying with the spiritual blessings so we've got the ginger mule spicy margarita paloma negroni and the mezcal all amazing. I think, you know, what is your favorite and why? I can't choose. I love the, well, the St. Mezcal, the new non-alcoholic spirit that's coming out tomorrow is my favorite right now. Although I'm, it's like a really hard thing to choose between your children, which would be the Little Saints drinks, you know, but I really love the St. Mezcal because I am like obsessed with the smell of Palo Santo. And I just like love being able to. So the Saint Mezcal is inspired by Mezcal. It's not a de-alcoholized Mezcal. It's not supposed to taste exactly like Mezcal. We took kind of the greatest parts of Mezcal, which is that it has that nice, like sweet, woody smell and aroma. It has like, because Mezcal can be produced in 30 different regions in Mexico, it has like really varied, rich flavor profiles. So we chose ginger and cardamom extracts to complement the pure Palo Santo extract, which we source directly from a sustainable forest in Northern Peru. So it's like a really special ingredient. And I, I just really, and then it has a hundred milligrams of lion's mane in it. Lion's mane is, I mean, I love all mushrooms, but lion's mane is my favorite mushroom. I can really feel a little bit of like brain activation, brain buzz when I drink it. It's not intoxicating. I started out by putting it in my coffee and it would kind of make me feel just like more alert and a little like lifted. And then I thought, okay, well, let's put this into a non-alcoholic spirit for little saints in like a high enough dose where it would have some effect and it really seems to work. Yeah, definitely. So lion's mane, is that in all of the drinks or where? I know I see we've got Rishi in one. We've got, there's a bunch of different stuff. So how do you kind of yeah. go through each of the flavors? So the, so the mocktails, each of like our products so far, which is the category of the plant magic mocktails have the same three functional ingredients in them, which is CBD. It's just 10 milligrams per can. Reishi mushroom, which is a good, like, it, it kind of like relaxes your nervous system in that same way that like your first sip of alcohol would. And then terpenes, which are the smell molecules that we were talking about. It's like the smell. So that's the terpenes, CBD and reishi mushroom, the plant magic, we call it a stack for the mocktails. And then the St. Mezcal is a totally new form factor. You know, it's in a 750 milliliter glass bottle design like a beautiful mezcal bottle and that and that has a brand new plant magic stack so that has 100 milligrams of lion's mane mushroom per serving we're the first functional non-alcoholic drink to like call out a single ingredient with how many like a single adaptogenic agreement ingredient with how many milligrams of something it has in it 
Hmm. What no one else is. Why wouldn't people put the amount? Like what, what are they shying away from? No, they do like, but they put it into a blend, right? So like there are great brands that I'll say like, we have all this stuff in here and this is X many milligrams, but I'm a big fan of the Andrew Huberman philosophy on supplements that it's like, do like a single supplement and like on its own and do it in a, in a significant enough dose. So it's going to do something. So I really know that lion's mane on its own for me. And there are studies to support what I have experienced is that like lion's mane on its own is more effective than when it's blended together with a million different things. And so we really were like, okay, we're going to put, you know, hundred milligrams of lion's mane per dose, which is a good dose into each serving. And we've tasted it with a ton of people. And, you know, we do get pretty consistent feedback that people like feel like they're in a good mood. They feel like a little lift again, it's not intoxicating, but it seems to be like there's enough support for it's enough for it to kind of do something. Well, I've been drinking them this afternoon and I feel great. So, you know, <laughs> I think you're onto something. And you know what's interesting is each can is like five calories. I mean, I get it because there's zero sugar, but still, how is that even possible? It's uh, pretty amazing. It's so much taste in each of these cans. And then you're like, oh, wait, but there's like zero sugar and there's only five calories for this whole can. Yeah, I mean, it's like a little, they're little miracles. We sweeten with um, pure monk fruit juice extract. So there's no, we get a lot of emails after the erythritol thing came out. Like there's that. So it's just pure monk fruit juice concentrate. That's it. And that has, that's a very powerful sweetener that has no calories. So that's why there's like no sugar in there. And then the five calories just comes from, you know, the plant extracts that are in the flavors. So you've been working on this, I guess, for almost three years. Is that accurate? You know, the first time, so there are Little Saints with the pandemic and everything. It was like a little touch and go. I launched Little Saints about two years ago at the Movement Techno Music Festival in Detroit, where I was living. And at the time, the supply chain was a disaster in 2021 because of COVID. So all we had was these weird looking tall boy cans, which are not the cute little Little Saints cans you see now. We didn't get the cute little Little Saints cans until September, October 2021. And then we launched at Erewhon in November 2021. So that was really when I would say Little Saints started outside of the Midwest. That summer of 2021, when we had the tall boy cans, I had a an amazing Little Saints vending trailer. It's a mint green vending trailer that I towed all around Michigan. And I went to music events like movement. I went to outdoor festivals and I sold the cans like in real life. And the whole time I was getting feedback because I knew that I wanted to move to one of the coasts and like really make Little Saints like a, a bigger brand. And I wanted to move to one of the coasts, but it was really important to me that Little Saints read resonated with my people who are Midwesterners, like who are, I'm absolutely generalizing, but who are like used to drinking cocktails and they want a similar experience. And so I used that summer to do, I mean, I met thousands of people. So many, I sampled, I sold the drinks and I got a lot of great feedback that made its way into what was the final form of the mocktails that then launched that November, 2021. Amazing. And so what have been some of the biggest challenges that you faced in, in getting the brand to this point. Yeah, you know, the um thankfully we've really kind of hit our stride with, 
with e-com. And so we have, when we have um, inventory, which I'll talk about later, but we have like a really good um, e-commerce customer base. And I, that's like really fun to see, especially in beverage, which would be the least obvious thing to kind of buy on e-commerce. Um, but the flip side of that is that we learned a lot with wholesale. So like wholesale distribution, um, we launched with we had two alcohol distributors. One is still great. It's a craft beer distributor in Michigan who I like totally love. They've gotten us onto a lot of cool bar and restaurant menus and like, you know, higher volume um, bars and grab and go. Um, and then we did another one in California that was an, a bigger alcohol distributor and they just their people, you know, the the distributors can often be the gatekeepers in between whether your stuff gets on the shelf or not. And um, non-elk is such a new category for them, especially because the mocktails have CBD in them. It was such a new category. And so we really learned a lot of lessons, which were financially difficult as an entrepreneur. And we will be relaunching our wholesale in New York and Miami, kind of with those lessons learned in California, which is just that even though the customer wants it, even though like this, you know, grocery store or bar or restaurant might want it, the distribution piece was pretty tough. And so I know that you, you know, it sounds like you spent some time in Detroit launching the business there. Then you moved to New York. Now you're in Miami. I'd love to hear when, before we have Don, you were talking to me about how you obviously from a business strategy perspective, but also from a money astrology perspective, decided to move all the way over to Miami to continue building the business. So can you walk us through why and how you incorporated money astrology into your decision making? Sure. Yes, absolutely. And I will start with the reason that I am actually grateful to be a single entrepreneur. So I had, you know, the super blessing of being able to kind of move wherever I wanted. And so my goal is to share little saints with as many people as possible and like spread joy through that. And so I really, it's been an exercise for me figuring out, okay, where is the best geography to make that happen? And so I started it in Detroit. I love Detroit so much, but there's like a limited kind of reach there. I kind of see like, okay, like I'm not going to be able to scale it from, excuse me, Detroit. So I moved all of 2022, I spent kind of hopping in between New York and LA because we have business in both of those places. And neither felt totally right to me. Like I love both places for different reasons. There was nothing like super wrong, but neither felt totally right. And then from a business strategy perspective, most of the non-alcoholic beverage brands are based in New York and LA. And it felt like crowded. And this is my third business. So I understand marketing. And I was thinking like, oh, I wonder you know, where I could go that I would have the benefit of having more of a first mover advantage and like really be able to build a community around non-alc that doesn't currently exist. And so that was what I had on my mind. And then I have a money astrologer who has a business called Soulful Wealth. Her name's Jen Hers. She has a love award you, MBA. Jen. I know Jen. Jen. She's oh wonderful. She has a Wharton MBA and was a Goldman futurist economist. And so right. she looks at astrology through math. And so I had just started working with her in December and I was driving myself crazy with my indecision of where I lived. And so January came and I was like, I can't make this decision on my own, which means that neither of my two options are the right 
decision. And so I had Jen do my astrocartography and I told her that my goal was to have little saints be wildly successful. And she did my cartography, meaning that she uses math, takes my birthplace, date and time and geography and tells you where in the country. And I told her to limit it to the continental United States. And she's also a business person. So I was like, make sure it's a city big enough where like little saints would thrive. And so she ranked the U.S. cities in terms of like where astrologically speaking, like Little Saints and I would be successful. And Miami was far and above at the top of the list. The second one, not a close second was Denver and Boulder. And then like the third was LA. Wow. And so (laughs) I just, and then that was in mid January and I moved to Miami on March 1st. Wow. That's insane. I always find it fascinating when astrology leads decision-making sometimes, or, you know, not leads it, but has a lot of influence on decision-making. That's really fascinating. So funny. I know Jen from a mom's group that I'm in and she is just amazing, but it's so funny when you have these friends and you have an idea of what they do, but you've never really tapped into it. (laughs) So this is like, I feel like I know her, but I'm like, wait, do I know her? I don't know if I know her. Like, I know she's time for your one-on-one intuitive session. Yeah. I'm like, (laughs) wait a minute. I need to cash in on this friendship. What's going on? That's awesome. (laughs) So you're in Miami. How has it been? Do you feel like money is just flowing your way now? I will say the first week we moved to Miami, I closed a small fundraising round and I got an apartment and all these people like reached out to us wanting to work together. So it did feel like we are supposed to be in Miami and I do love it there. And people do seem very excited about Nano because again, there are just like not that many down there. It just feels, yeah, it feels like the right place. And also I'm just really committed to making it work and just like having a positive attitude. There's nothing not positive about it in Miami, but I'm just kind of like, this is where I'm going and I'm going to make it work. That's awesome. And so how was the fundraising process? Before we begin to wrap up, let's talk about the fundraising process, any challenges that you had there. Was it a seed round that you recently closed? Yeah, it was a very pre-seed round. So in my previous companies, I raised a lot of venture capital. You know, I think we raised $20 million for the Field and Farmer Farm to Your Company. So I've done a lot of fundraising and I was determined to do it differently. In what way? What do you mean by that? Well, I, I've raised money from, from all angels so far. I have not taken any VC money yet. I don't have a board. I have many advisors. Like I, I can't do anything on my own. I'm always asking like my advisors for help, but I don't have a formal board. And I think that's been really important for the company to grow like it has. You know, we grew 225% from just Q4 2022 to Q1 2023. We're growing pretty quickly. And I think in businesses that are very innovative. We talk a lot about feminine energy on team little saints. And that just means being able to like trust your intuition and trust the fact that entrepreneurs are channels. Like we take in the ideas that are out there in the universe. We're very observant. We take in like what people want that's not being fulfilled yet in the market. And it's our job to bring it to life. You know, it's not like necessarily an original idea just from one person. It's like the idea of the collective that hasn't been like out there yet. And so I mentioned that because, you know, I really wanted to be able to like have the freedom to function as an entity and really like use our intuition and maybe do things a little bit more unconventionally than we would have to had we raised VC money like I did before and had a board and all that stuff. Right. So you're focused on just angels. Did you go to family offices too or just angels? Just angels. 
just angels, no family offices yet. And I wouldn't be like against anyone. And now that we're starting to like have, you know, like our numbers continue to improve, you know, of course, like I have an MBA, I look at data as well, but I really like wanted to build a company that had an investor group that was like on board with the, you know, with the mission of of the company and we could do it a little bit outside of the box. So what's one of the things that you've done or implemented other than moving to Miami that you feel like has really helped move the needle? And I know that it's like a bunch of things combined a lot of the time, but is there anything specific that you can point to that you're like, I'm so glad we did this? Sure. I'm so glad that I have, and I think the majority of my team are females. And I can say from my business experience personally, like I don't think I have been encouraged to trust my intuition a lot in business before. And that like we do the opposite at Little Saints. So like we kind of start out the month of where we'll have a meeting and we'll say like, okay, what's your intuition telling you that we should be doing in this business right now that we haven't done? Like, where is your intuition telling you to go for your your skill set specifically, and then also us as a collective. And then at the end of the month, we'll check our intuition with data and be like, did this work? Like, did this bring in revenue? Like, how many views did we get? Like, we just have all the data, see if all the data supports our intuition, rather than needing data to allow us to act on our, on our intuition. That's interesting. So you put the intuition first, and then you double check to see if the the data kind of backs up what the intuition already knew. And what have what has the results been from doing that? I mean, honestly, we've, we this is a practice that we implemented a couple months ago, we were naturally doing that. And I really encourage my team to just be like, go for it. And of course, like, well, shit, something's like totally out there and it's going to harm the company. We won't do it. But I'll say the more that we trust our intuition and go farther away from the middle, the better things have been going. You have an example? Sure. Well, you'll see it tomorrow. We totally overhauled our website. We went away from the traditional, we're going to use like beautiful product photography and it's going to be sort of the same template of all of the other beverage brands and we went to like wild jungle illustration there's no data to tell you that like that's going to be great but you know like that was like one example of us just wanting to do something that would be impactful and i think you know any time that we have followed our intuition and done something that's like more kind of like radical or like renegade, as we like to say, it usually the farther away we get from the middle, the better we do in sales. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to see the new website tomorrow. <laughs> see oh, the new Jungle wait. theme. And that's wait. a really interesting approach. I haven't had that yet on the show. I know that a lot of founders have talked about how, you know, they want to trust their gut. Their gut has always been right. There's been talk about intuition, but I've never heard about founders encouraging their team to use their own intuition as well. And then to follow up a month later with data to see, was the intuitive feeling correct? Or how did it perform? And, and kind of that whole thing, like following actually the results of the intuition, if that makes sense, as from a team perspective. Mm -hmm. And we do, and we do it also every day. Like I'll have a crazy idea and I'll tell Katie, my brilliant head of marketing. And like, she's allowed to check me. I check her kind of, we're always saying what our gut says rather than keeping it in there. And I think that's really for us, that's where creativity has really flowed because it's part of the practice anyways. That's awesome. Well, Megan, thank you so much for sharing your awesome story and building little saints. I'm super excited for you guys. Love the product. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. I really enjoyed it. 
thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.